Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. Hey, um, I'm, I'm sure many of you know, uh, but some of you may not, that Ron's uh, mom died this week. And she was a, a godly woman who raised a godly man. And good for her. Good for her. Uh, the funeral is going to be in Arkansas, so many of us obviously won't be able to attend. But Ron just wanted to come this morning and say a few words. Thank you, Derek. Um, it was almost exactly 13 years ago that Pastor Henry preached a sermon on Philippians 4.13, which just happens to be mine and my dad's favorite verse of all time. That verse says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But Pastor Henry made the point of changing the word all to one. I can do this one thing through Christ who strengthens me, because obviously one is contained in all. And it was almost immediately after that that my dad passed away. And uh, so I relied on that message, that verse, to get me through that time, and I'm counting on it again right now, but uh, please bear with me if I have trouble. Uh, the, uh, that would be a sign of my weakness, not God's lack of power right here. Um, okay, I'm, I'm just going to read this because otherwise I won't get through it. I may not get through it anyway, but my mom passed away Friday after spending the past 18 months at Eden Springs. Her funeral service will be in Arkansas uh, rather than here, so Pastor Henry offered me this opportunity to share a bit about how God was working through her at Eden Springs. Carol and I had brought my mother from Arkansas six years ago to live out the rest of her life with us. Uh, my dad had passed away 13 years ago. Uh, at that time, mother was in an assisted living facility and her uh, signs of dementia were increasing uh, when we brought her here. During the four and a half years that she lived with us, she asked us many times, why is God not taking me home? We would just answer that we didn't know, but that he must have something more in store for you. We came to understand over the past year and a half that the something more was her being at Eden Springs. And our understanding of that fact was magnified many times over this past week. Eighteen months ago, Mother had a mild stroke that affected her left arm and leg. Had it not been for her Alzheimer's disease, I believe she could have learned how to walk again. But as it was, she ended up confined to a wheelchair. Now, this point may not align with some of your theology, but... We believe that God gave her that stroke to get her to Eden Springs. I say this because Carol and I were resistant to the idea of placing her in a nursing home. But once she was confined to the wheelchair, we accepted that she needed to be at Eden Springs. It wasn't long 
before we started hearing from other residents that she had become known as a praying woman. And then various staff members started telling us how much they loved my mother. But when her rapid decline started Wednesday night and she was moved to a private room, Carol and I really got to see a fuller extent of the impact she had had there. I got a call at about 1 a.m. Thursday morning, and for the next 36 hours, Carol or I or both of us uh, were with her every minute. She was totally non-responsive during that time, never spoke, but we could sense when she was hearing us or others talking. I would venture to say that almost every nurse, CNA, which is the Certified Nursing Assistant, and front office personnel came by her room and told us how special she was to them. About 7 a.m. Thursday morning, the off-going nurse brought the oncoming nurse in to introduce me, and I heard several people in the hall outside the door. I heard someone say, here she is. Remember, I said that they moved her during the night uh, to a private room. So anyway, I heard someone say, here she is, and a CNA came around, came around the two nurses, knelt down beside my mother, and said, Hello, Grandma. I love you. She stroked her hair a little bit and quietly left. Even the nurse that was attending to Mother when she passed was supposed to be off that day after working a double shift the day before. But she had requested to work so she could care for Mother and support us. Another time, a different CNA that I didn't recall ever seeing before came in, kissed my mother on the forehead several times, and said, I love you several more times, somewhat ignoring me. Uh, I was on the opposite side of the bed at that time, but uh, anyway. And then she proceeded to tell me how much she loved my mother and how special my mother was to her. She said that on the days that she was assigned to another section of Eden Springs, she would go find Mother during her 15-minute breaks to visit with her. My point in sharing all of that is to say each of these exchanges gave Carol and me the opportunity to share that God's purpose for her was being fulfilled by her being at Eden Springs. And his purposes were being served even after Mother was unable to speak. I guess my message for all of us is that as a child of God, our life has purpose all the way to the end, and for some, even beyond. Never forget that the Spirit is alive within us as, and is in communion with the Holy Spirit, even when the body and soul are not whole. Thank you. Let's just take a moment to pray for Ron and his family. Father, we thank you for this woman of God. We thank you for this man of God. We thank you, God, that it all matters. There's not a moment in our life, not a moment, that doesn't matter to you that you don't have a plan and a purpose for. And thank you for Ron's mother's experience and his experience in making that clear to us. We ask for your blessings on their family. We ask for the peace that passes all understanding. I pray, God, that you fill that funeral service with joy. 
not sadness, but just joy, knowing that they'll see her again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. My message this morning is entitled, The Offense of the Cross. The Offense of the Cross. I'm taking this from Galatians 5.11. I'm going to ask them to go ahead and put that up, and I want you to see it. Galatians 5.11, it says this, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, how many of you here have ever been offended? You don't have to raise your hand. (laughs) Um, But it happens to all of us, doesn't it? There's always comes a time in our life and somebody says something or somebody does something and it hurts us or it, it, it makes us angry or... It upsets us. It happens to everybody. I, I remember a time about 30 years ago. It was the early 90s. I was working at a company uh, up in Tallahassee. And there was a, another young man there, and we became friends. I was, um, uh, we were both about the same age. I was from Walcola County. He was from uh, Bluntstown. He had graduated from the University of Florida, and I had graduated from Florida State. And, and we just had, we had a, a lot in common, and so we started to hang out and go to lunch together, and we'd play golf together and, and just, just, you know, became friends. And one day at lunch, he looked across the table, and he said something to me that was offensive. Now, before I tell you what he said, i got to give you a little bit of backstory. Um, for those of you from Walcola County, and for those of you that have moved in lately, you may not know this, but Walcola County hasn't always had the best reputation, okay? That may shock some of you, but but Walcola County hasn't always had the best reputation. Now, a lot's changed in the last 20 or 25 years, but when I was growing up, believe it or not, uh, people in the surrounding counties looked down on Walcola County. Uh, If you came from Walcola County, they kind of looked at you as if you were a little bit backward, to say the least. Now, like I said, a lot of things has changed, and that's all, all well and good. But I wanted to, to set that stage for you so you can understand what he said. So that day at lunch, he looked at me and said, man, I want to ask you a question. I said, sure, go ahead. And these are his words. He said to me, he said, being from Walcola County, whatever gave you the notion that you could actually go to college? He said that to me. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I'm not easily offended. I, I'm not. I just, there's very little that offends me, and, and that really didn't offend me that day. It probably should have, but it didn't. Because I remember I looked across the table. I said, dude, you're from Bluntstown. <laughs> Do you not know that we look down on people? from Bluntstown? I don't think he knew that. And uh, I said, that's kind of like the pot calling the kettle black, right? Um, But we had a good laugh about it. And he didn't didn't mean anything uh, about it. And and, and by the way, most of the time when people say offensive things, they just do it inadvertently, right? They, They don't know what they're saying. Now, there are people out there that are just plain mean, right? They're just mean people out there. But most of the time, people don't really mean it. It happens to all of us. And the reason 
that it happens is because we are broken people. We are fallen people. We are sinful people. There's an old adage in self-help books that you see from time to time. It goes like this, hurting people hurt people. Y'all ever seen that? Well, there's actually a biblical, a better biblical way to say it. Sinful people sin against people. Sinful people sin against other people. Because that's who we are. Now, that doesn't make it right, and I'm not saying it's right, but offenses are going to come because we are sinners. But there's one person that's walked this planet that's not a sinner. There is one person that's walked this planet that's never done anything wrong. Surely, surely if anybody would never cause offense, it would be Jesus. But it turns out that's not what the Bible says at all. I want to read a scripture to you. This is Luke chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. John the Baptist is in prison, and he starts having some doubts about Jesus. And he, and he sends some of his followers to Jesus, and, and he says to ask him, Are you the one? Are you the Messiah, or should we look for another? And this is Jesus' answer in Luke seven twenty-two to 23. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. And then Jesus said this, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, let's think about this this morning. Let's say you're new to the Bible. And many of you here may be new to the Bible. You're just reading the Bible for the first time, and you come across that passage. And at first glance, you will think, man, that absolutely makes no sense. First of all, who in the world would be offended by someone who raises the dead and cleanses the lepers and opens the deaf ear and opens the blind eye? What in the world is offensive about that? And then you might think, and the other thing is, it's Jesus who's saying this. Jesus who is the meekest and gentlest and kindest person to ever walk this planet. What in the world would be offensive about him? In fact, the Gospel of John says he's full of grace and truth. The more you think about it, you think that the idea of Jesus offending somebody is absolutely absurd. And if you're new to the Bible, you might even think, man, he's got to mean something else. He can't really mean that. So you keep reading. And you come and you find other scriptures in the New Testament. For example, 1 Peter 2, verses 7 through 8. Peter says this, So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So you're like, okay, well, that must be what he really means. There's something about Jesus that is offensive. But what can it be? What can it be about this kind and loving and generous and gracious and truthful man that causes people to get upset? or angry, or even hurt. So you keep reading, and then you come to a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, and you hear Paul say this, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Now let me explain something to you about Jesus. As long as you put Jesus in a nice little box, everybody will love him. If you just say that Jesus is a good teacher, everybody loves that Jesus. 
If you say that Jesus is a, is a good man, nobody will have any problem with that whatsoever. You can even say that he's a prophet. Nobody will have a problem with that. The Muslims believe that Jesus is a good prophet. The Hindus and the, and the, and the Buddhists, even the atheists, will love that Jesus. But you take Jesus and you put him on that cross and he offends people. Now, even that, you got to ask why. I mean, what is it about the cross that's offensive? I mean, when I think of the cross, you know what I think about? I think about love. God demonstrated his love for us even while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. When I look at that cross, I see love. I see forgiveness. I see atonement. I see mercy. I see redemption. Those are all wonderful things. What in the world could be offensive about that? So we keep reading and we keep studying. And then one day we come to the book of Galatians and we find our answer. Now let me give you a little bit of backstory. Paul has established a church in the Roman province of Galatia. And he's established this church on the gospel. And the gospel means that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works, lest any man should boast. And he establishes that church. And then he leaves because he's, he's got other churches to establish. And he's got another missionary journey that he's got to make. And while he's gone, some men come into that church from Jerusalem, some Jews. And when they get there, they begin to, to teach these people. And they say, you know what? All of that stuff that Paul says is, is pretty good, but you're missing one thing. If you really want to be saved, if you really, really want to be a child of God, if you really want to make sure that you're going to go to heaven, then you have to be circumcised. You got to do that one thing. That's, that's, that's the sign of the covenant of the chosen people of God. If you really want to be saved as a Gentile, you have to be circumcised. Now, somehow, word gets out to Paul. And Paul goes, I don't need any other word to say it, Paul goes ballistic. And he writes them a letter. Listen, if there had been planes in that day, he'd have been on the first plane. If there had been email, he would have wrote an email. But in that day, there was only a letter was the fastest way he could get a communication to him. And he writes a letter and he goes off. I want to give you some of the words that he says. This is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ is no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Now that is tough language. Because basically what Paul is saying is over here you got the gospel. You got Jesus. You got the cross. You got saved by grace. And over here you've got works. And he says if you leave this Jesus, if you leave the cross and grace and you come over here, then Jesus is no good to you. You are severed from Jesus. You have fallen away from grace. It's one or the other. You can't mix them. You're either saved by grace or you're saved by works. You take your pick, Paul says. But if you walk over there, you've left Christ. You've abandoned Christ is what he says. And then Paul says this, Galatians 5.11. We read it earlier. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? 
Because in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, if I come over here and preach works, everybody will love me. If I just come up with a religion that gets you to God based on how good you are, nobody will persecute that. Have you ever wondered why today that seems like every other religion nobody has a problem with except real, true Christianity? Have you ever noticed that? Because every other religion says you earn it. True Christianity is the only one that says you can do absolutely nothing to earn it. And Paul, that's what Paul is saying. If I would just give up the message of the cross and come over here and preach works, nobody would persecute me. Everybody would love me. But what's offensive about the cross is that it disallows works as a way to get to heaven. Let me say it again. What's offensive about Jesus on the cross is it disallows works as a way to get to heaven. Now, I wrote down four very quick quick things, and I'm going to go through this fast because I've got something else I want to get to. The message of the cross is offensive. I'm going to give you four things. Number one, because it tells us that we are broken. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to have a finger pointed in them that says, You're not a good person. You're not a good person. You're not a good person. In God's eyes, you are evil. In God's eyes, you are wicked. In God's eyes, you fall woefully short. Does that tickle anybody's ears? It doesn't mind. Who who wants to hear that message? The second thing that makes the message of the cross offensive is it tells us that we cannot save ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The only way we can get to heaven, we can't do it on our own. We can't earn it. We can't merit it. We can't work for it. We cannot save ourselves. And let me tell you, proud human beings do not want to hear that. That's why it's so much easier to win the poor and the downtrodden than it is the rich and successful. Because the poor and the downtrodden know they can't do it. They've been trying their whole life and they can't do it. The rich and successful think, well, look at me. I did all of this. Surely God will accept me. The third reason the message of the cross is offensive because it says Jesus is the only way. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Folks, people don't want to hear that. What they want to hear is, as long as you're sincere... As long as you try your best, as long as you've got faith in something and you're, and you're doing the very best you can, then, then God is going to accept you. And the message of the cross says, no, no, none of that stuff. I don't care how sincere you are. Putting your faith in anything other than Jesus is a losing cause. That's what the, mess, the gospel says. The gospel stands up and says Christianity is true and every other religion is false. See, if we would just come out today and say, hey, there's a lot of ways to God. Everybody would love you. But the message that there's only one way is offensive. The fourth thing that makes the message of the cross is offensive is because it tells us that Jesus is Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, Paul says this, You are not your own, you are bought with a price. 
Folks, listen. Salvation is not just praying a prayer. Salvation is not walking down an aisle. Salvation is becoming a slave to a God who demands my obedience. People don't want to hear that. Who wants to hear that you're not your own? You belong to somebody else. You need to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called. Nobody wants to hear that. They want to do their own thing. That's why the cross is offensive. Now, if I stop right there, that's a pretty good sermon, right? It's decent. I think you got the point. But I want to drive this home today in a way you'll never forget, hopefully. And I was struggling with this a few weeks ago. I was studying this, uh, this topic about the, the offense of the cross. And I, and, I, and I was thinking, you know, I, I get all that, but how, do you, how, do, how, do, can I, how can we drive it home in a way people won't forget? And I ran across a guy who gave an example... And when he gave that example, I thought, I'll never forget that. So I want to pass this on, pass what he did on to you this morning. Now, I tweaked it just a little bit, but hopefully you'll never forget what I'm about to say. I'm going to give you the example of two people, one man and one woman. He was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1953. His birth was the result of an affair between a Jewish woman who was single and a Gentile or non-Jewish man who was married with a family. So he was the product of adultery. He, uh, she put him up for adoption, and a Jewish family from the Bronx adopted him the very first week of his life. When he was four years old, his mom and dad sat him down and told him that he was adopted. And, uh, and he asked the question, well, where's my mother? And according to the conventional wisdom of the experts of that day in 1957, they were supposed to tell him, your mother died in childbirth. So that's what they did. In his mind, what he heard was, I killed my mother. I'm a bad person. There's something wrong with me. And all throughout his life, he had behavioral problems. He had mental health problems. He would throw fits that were so bad that his father would sit on top of him and hold him down until he would calm down. His mom would think he was outside playing and he'd go in the closet and sit in the dark for hours. He just loved sitting in the dark. He had such behavioral problems and mental health problems that every Saturday, his mom would drive him to Manhattan to sit down with a child psychologist to try to figure out what's wrong with him and try to, try to help him in some way, but they never could. He struggled throughout school, fighting, and he had problems with bullying where he was the bully. Just all kind of issues. He finally got out of high school and he went in the Army. He went in the Army, he discovered drugs and he began to take LSD. And as he took, spent a year taking LSD, his, his, his mental health problems just got worse. And worse and worse. Finally, he comes from home from the army. He gets a security job in New York City. And he's got a lot of time in his, on his hands. And he begins to dabble in the occult. He eventually becomes a full Satan worshiper. And begins to communicate with demons. When he's 23 years old, the demon starts telling him it's time to shoot somebody. 
And so he buys a gun, and he does exactly what the demon told him to do. He begins to shoot people. Mostly young couples sitting in cars, he would just walk up and, and shoot them. And over a period of time from 1976 to 1977, there were several shootings he, uh, where there were six fatalities and seven wounded. And he would write a letter. He'd write letters to the newspapers at that time. And he would try to explain why he was doing it. And he said, Sam told me to do it. Sam, by the way, was a demon, Sam Hain, that he communicated with. Finally, in 1977, he was caught. And he immediately confessed. He, he pleaded guilty. And he was sentenced in 1978 to 365 years in prison. We know him, if probably the older people do, as the son of Sam. Or his name is David Berkowitz. After he'd been in prison for 10 years... He was walking on the yard one day, and another inmate by the name of Rick came up. And Rick had become a Christian in prison, and he began to witness to David Berkowitz. And he gave him a little Gideon New Testament that had the Psalms in it. We've all seen those, right? Little Gideon. And he said, David, and, and of course, Berkowitz didn't want to have anything to do with him. I don't need that Jesus stuff. I'm Jewish. I don't need any of that. And uh, he said, well, just, just read it. Of course, in prison, nothing to do. So at night, he would read that little New Testament. And I'll let him pick up the story from here. He said, one night as I was reading Psalms 34, I came upon the sixth verse, which said, The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. And in that moment in 1987, I began to pour out my heart to God. Everything seemed to hit me at once, the guilt from what I did the disgust at what I had become. And late that night in my cell, I got down on my knees and I began to cry out to Jesus Christ. Now listen, we've all heard of jailhouse conversions, right? We've all heard of prison conversions. And, uh, you know, you got to take that with a grain of salt. But I heard about him. I heard about some things and I thought, well, I'm going to find out if this guy's the real deal. Well, it turns out in 2015, he sat down about 28 years after his conversion. He sat down... For a set of interviews, by the way, you can watch them on YouTube. There's nine of them. I watched all nine of them, so you, so you don't necessarily have to. Um, but I sat down and I made notes of some things he said in those interviews. I'm just listening. It, it, does this guy know Jesus? I want to read a few things he said. He says, My testimony has gone into many prisons and jails, giving men and women hope that God forgives sins, that he redeems people, that even if you're in prison, God will not reject you that he has come to seek and save that which was lost, that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's hands of mercy are stretched wide open. God says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those are his words. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like he's pretty familiar with the gospel. Near the end of the interview, he said this, my hope is that one day I see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. And I'm going to look in his eyes and say, thank you, Jesus, for saving a wretch like me. My message has always been that if he can do it for someone like me, a chief of sinners, he can do it for anyone who will put their trust in him. Her story is 180 degrees the opposite of David Berkowitz. She was raised in church and she knew by the age of 12 that she wanted to spend her life serving God. 
At the age of 18, she graduated high school and became a nun. She moved to Ireland for a year, and at the age of 19, she moved to India as a teacher. And at the age of 40, she decided she wanted to dedicate the rest of her life to serving the poor. In 1950, she started an organization called the Missionaries of Charity, which cared for refugees and prostitutes and the mentally ill and orphaned children and, and sick people and dying people. In 1952, she opened a hospice for the sick and dying. In 1955, she opened a children's home. In 1960, she opened a home for lepers. In 1962, she received the Award for Peace and International Understanding. In 1971, she received the inaugural Pope John XXIII Peace Prize. In 1973, she received the Templeton Prize. In 1979, she received the highest award we can give, and that is the Nobel Peace Prize. And in 1999, she was voted the most widely admired person of the 20th century. And that, of course, is who? Mother Teresa. Now, it's easy to read about Mother Teresa. There's books written about her. She did a lot of interviews. And I read and watched a lot of them. I wrote down, just the way I read some of David Berkowitz's words to you, I want to read hers. She says, if in coming face to face with God, we accept him in our lives, then we are converting. We become a better Hindu, a better Muslim, a better Catholic, a better whatever we are. What God is in your mind, you must accept. Here's another quote. I love all religions. If people become better Hindus, better Muslims, better Buddhists by our acts of love, then there's something else growing there. All is God, Buddhists, Hindus, Christians, all have access to the same God. Now listen, I read a lot. I read several interviews with her, read all of her quotes that I could find. And let me tell you, I, in all I read, I could not find one quote, not one, that ever mentioned the cross. I, I could not find one quote, not one, that ever said anything about sin or judgment, or redemption. Now, there's some great quotes. There's quotes about love, and there's quotes about serving others. It's, it, there's some incredible quotes, but I could not find one that ever mentioned the cross. I, I could find no evidence at all in any of her writings that she understood the gospel. That she understood, as Andrew Murray says, salvation comes through a cross and a crucified Christ. I could find no evidence that she got that. Now, here's my point. I don't know either one of these people, and I don't know their hearts, and I certainly wouldn't judge them. But here's the offense of the cross. If David Berkowitz, murderer, demon worshiper, with all the terrible stuff that he's done, if he really believes what he said, if he really believes the gospel, he's going to be in heaven. And if Mother Teresa, even with all the good she did, even with the exemplary life that she lived, if she doesn't believe the gospel, she will not be in heaven. That is the offense of the gospel. That is an offensive message. You're telling me that Berkowitz, a killer, 
a demon worshiper can, can, can fall on his knees before God and go to heaven. And my grandmother, my sweet little grandmother who was kind and gentle and never heard a fly, but she never went to church, never confessed faith in Jesus. You're telling me that he'll go to heaven and she won't? Yes. And that is the offense of the gospel. There's a story in Luke 18 that Jesus tells, and you all know it, the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember that? At the very beginning of the story, listen to what Jesus said. Right before he tells the parable, he says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. You see, the Pharisee walks in and he looks across the church and he sees this tax collector. And he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like him. I tithe. I fast twice a week. I'm a good religious man. Go to church. I thank you that I'm not like him. And of course, the tax collector is over there. He's got nothing. He just says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, it turns out that everybody's in the same boat. The message of the cross is that the Pharisee and the tax collector are in the same boat. The murderer and the nun are in the same boat. The pedophile, the worst of the worst, the dregs of society and the kindly grandmother, they're in the same boat. They can do nothing to earn their righteousness before a just and holy God. And that is the offense of the cross. There's nothing so terrible that can keep you out. But there is nothing good enough to get you in. You see, that message offends people. Now, I want to close with this. There's got to be some people in this audience today that are not saved. You hear, we often stand up and say this, if you are sure, if you're not sure of your salvation, there's got to be people here who are not sure of your salvation. I want to, in that parable that Jesus gives, he ends with this, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Tax collector. He says this, For all those who exalt themselves will be humble, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you're not a believer to hear, hear today, I've got uh, some good news for you. All God wants, this is all He wants, He just wants us to confess our bankruptcy before Him and our need for Him. That's all He wants. He just wants us to come and say, God, I've tried it myself. It ain't working. I got nothing. I put all my faith in Your Son. The blood that He shed on that cross, that's what I'm, I, I, I'm counting on that. That's all God wants. That's all He wants. Just confess our bankruptcy before Him. So I've got wonderful news. If you're one of those people and you've done terrible things, there are people in here who have done terrible things. You, you're actually sitting there thinking, if these people knew what I've done, they wouldn't sit beside me. They wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. I got good news for you. God wants to have something to do with you. God loves David Berkowitz. God loves Mary Magdalene, the prostitute that he cast seven demons out of. God wants you to know him. And he wants to know you today. You haven't done anything bad enough that you can't just say, Father, have mercy on me. But here's the other thing very quickly. The vast majority of us are not like that. 
the vast majority of us sit in our seats and we say, that's not me. I'm a good person. I, I'm, I'm a good person. I followed the rules. I followed the laws. I'm, I'm, I haven't done terrible things. Let me give you a, a little bit of a clue here this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not quite sure if you died today, you'd go to heaven. Can I give you, it could be because you're still relying on your works. Down deep inside of you, you're still thinking, I, I, I can be better. I can do this thing. I, I can be a good person. I got some good news for you. In fact, I got a message for you. Just stop it. Just stop it. Listen, you can't be as good as Mother Teresa. I, I'm sorry. You just can't be as good as her. And with all that she did, if she doesn't believe the gospel, she's not going to heaven. The same is true for you. The same is true for us. Get off the treadmill. Stop trying. I tell you, when you let me tell you what happens. When you come before God and you confess your bankruptcy and you said, I got nothing. It all goes on Him. And when it all goes on Him and you give up, finally, for the first time in your life, you have assurance. And you know that you know that you know that you're saved because it ain't got nothing to do with me and it's got everything to do with him I leave you with one statement by the Lord himself blessed blessed is he who's not offended by me let's pray Father Lord I thank you for the cross I thank you for the cross Lord I thank you for the blessed assurance of the cross I thank you that years ago, Lord, you drove this deep into my heart to get off the treadmill of good works and just confess my bankruptcy before you and oh, the assurance that I have today. God, I pray that we all could have that assurance. If there's anyone here today, God, that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, if there's anyone here today that thinks they're too bad or too good to walk down this aisle, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do right now. Draw them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us at ROL Crawfordville for more information and directions.